Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. In your bulletin, you'll notice that it goes down through uh, verse 7. We're going to preach through verse 17. So if you have Bibles or have a phone, you might want to turn those on so that you can be sure to see those next ten verses. Let's pray. And then we'll dive into the text together. Jesus, thank you that you use your word to change our life. Your word lives forever. And we need to hear it this morning. Would you strengthen us by your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was talking to a man the other day here in town who is not a Christian, doesn't go to church anywhere, and he said, you know, I really, I just, I just don't see the point. Everybody in this town goes to church. Why? Like, I, I have to take care of my mother. Like, that's, that's my religion. Like, I care for her. She's getting older. I've got to go, I've got to go get her groceries for her every day. And I, I just don't really get it. Do you? It's possible for us to slip through Christmas. What I mean by that is it's possible for us to really not think a whole lot about the virgin birth of Jesus or the incarnation, really. But Easter holds you at gunpoint, as it were. Easter says to you, no, 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 you can't walk through this holiday without addressing this crucial question, which is the cornerstone of our faith. What happened on that Easter morning? Not only what happened, but did Jesus really rise from the dead? And here's the funny thing about that. In 
September of 2011, I mean 2001, something horrible happened, right? When those towers went down. And right after September 11th, 2001, all of the polls went out and said, America, do you believe, do you believe in absolute truth? And they looked at the evil of that event and higher than they'd seen in many, many years. Of course we believe in absolute truth. That was evil. But you know, it's interesting, those same polls are being played out now and in the years subsequent to September 11th. And do you know what people are finding? That people really, frankly, don't really believe in absolute truth anymore. It's, it's interesting how in a decade so much has changed. Back to our old ways we are. In fact, a recent poll by Barna said that only one in three born-again Christians, one in three born-again Christians, Believe in absolute truth. Now, that sounds far-fetched to me. It may sound far-fetched to you. And I really don't care if that stat is true or not. But my experience says that it, it, it's, it's, it's probably something like 50%. Because the more and more we talk to Christians, the more and more they look at the doctrines that Christians profess. And the more that they dismiss a lot of those Doctrines, not because they have good arguments for why they dismiss them, but they just don't feel right. Because as soon as you say something is absolute, you're like watching your back because you're afraid of offending somebody else, aren't you? It is so hard to say this is absolutely true these days because of the threat of persecution from without or within our culture. So today I'm going to make a very bold statement and I'm going to try to help you think about what happened in Matthew chapter 28. Think about what happened on that Easter Sunday morning and here's the principle of the sermon. I'm going to give it to you and then I'm going to talk about it together. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of all truth and it's the end of all your fears. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of all truth and it's the end of all your fears. So I'm going to talk about how the resurrection is true and give you evidence for it being so, but I'm going to do it through the lens of your fears because most of the time, that is why we have a hard time believing the gospel because we're fearful people. So let's dive in together. When I say we're fearful people, here, here's what I mean. I mean that most of our anxiety, most of our, um, most of our gray matter is filled with what's going to happen to my children, um, uh, am I going to be able to survive in retirement? Will I be able to make ends meet at the end of the month? How, how am I going to, you know, socially, I'm just like, I'm so frustrated. I don't really have any friends. And, and, and you grow overly sensitive to everything on Facebook and, my, and, and all the social media outlets. So, Let's look at our fears together. There are three fears, I think, that come out in this passage. Matthew is writing his gospel Primarily, there are, five, there are five different places in the, the New Testament where you see the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So in the first one of those, in Matthew, Matthew is writing his book to whom? Who's his primary audience? Primarily, it's Jewish people who he's writing to convince them of the coming Messiah, that he has come in Jesus Christ. In Matthew, if you know anything about Jewish people or the Jewish religion, you'll know something that is 
so admirable about people who follow the Torah. They are extremely devoted to it. They obey God the best they can. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, years ago in the 18th century, lived next door to a Jewish man. And Jonathan Edwards, this old great Puritan, the great preacher, some of you have read about in your high school English classes and sinners in the hands of an angry God. He, he looked across the window and he saw this Jewish person. He said, never in my life have I seen somebody so devoted. And the Jewish people Matthew's writing to had some certain fears. And those fears are the same fears that you and I have. What are those fears? First fear, fear number one, is their fear of rejection. Well, where do you see that in the text? Well, I, lower your eyes. Look at, look at verse one. Who is it that first sees Jesus? Who is it that comes to the tomb? Is it the disciples, the noble disciples? No, it's the women. It's the women. Listen, women in the first century did not even have a valid testimony in court. Now, I know that sounds harsh today, but a woman's worth is only relative to her husband's existence. This is why, for example, in the book of Ruth, when you read about Naomi, like after Malon and Kilion, her sons die and she has no husband, right? She, she calls herself Myra, bitter, because she has lost her value. She's lost her identity. And it's not until, not until Ruth marries Boaz that the family has a sense of identity. Now, I'm not saying that that is the way it should be today. Of course not. I am saying that was the way it was. And that women had no integrity in court. And so if Matthew's going to write about the resurrection, why would Matthew say that the very first people that see Jesus risen from the dead would be these women? Unless it were true. Hmm? Now, these women aren't just any women. This is Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene, some of you know throughout the Western tradition, Mary Magdalene has been identified as one who was a sinner, a prostitute, one who was with great sin. And yet some of us say, well, listen, I, I really don't know if I can believe in the gospel and Christianity because you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what I've done either. And here you have Mary Magdalene, who is a chief, she's a great, Jesus calls her a great sinner. And here she is, and Jesus appears to her. What does this teach us? It teaches us that Christianity is for everyone. It teaches us that in the ancient Near East, when religions were based upon class, you know, the Jewish religion was for those who were faithful to Israel, and Greco-Roman religions were always based upon class structures. But here Christianity blows it out of the water and says in the midst of our fear of rejection, you should not fear rejection anymore because Christ brings you in. He sings over you and says, I will accept you. Here's a woman who's in great sin. And he says, I want to show myself to you first. I don't know if that's comforting for you, but that's comforting for me to know that in the midst of my fear of being rejected by other people, do you know who accepts me? And do you know who loves me? My Savior. Despite my sin, He loves me. And He loves you too. And some of you say, 
Okay, that's great. That's great. All right, fear of rejection. Thank you. I think I, maybe I struggle with it. Maybe I don't. Um, I, I, I'm not even real sure if I believe this whole thing. Well, you know who Jesus also accepts? He accepts the doubters. He accepts those who really don't know what they believe. That is okay. Because he wants you to keep asking those questions. And he wants to push you into recognizing that you're not going to be able to find peace anywhere else except in the good news of the gospel. In the text, down in verse 17, I, I, I love the fact that Mark, uh, Matthew includes this. So finally, Jesus appears to the disciples. He appears to the disciples. And notice what it says. It says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, some of you say, hey, look, it's so, it's, I love living my life. This is awesome. I love being part of a new church plant. This is kind of fun to come visit this church plant. You know, it's kind of how they do the gym. I just wish Jesus would show up, like give me some kind of sign, right? Like Woody Allen said, God, could you just give me a sign, like a big lump sum in a Swiss bank account with my name on it, right? If you would, would you just show up? Here's the comforting thing. Even if Jesus showed up, you might still doubt. Because you know what? He's here. And your fear of rejection can, it crumbles beneath the weight of his presence because he loves you, no matter if you doubt, no matter if you're struggling with sin. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus brings us in. Faith doesn't mean you have no doubts. The presence of your doubt means that there is an existence of faith. Otherwise, you would have no doubts. Why would Matthew, why would Matthew, if he's writing this to Jews, and he wants to be very clear that the resurrection happened, why would Matthew tell Jewish readers, listen, some of these guys doubted. I know some of you who are reading this, Jewish people don't believe Jesus raised from the dead. I know you doubt it. Well, listen, some of the disciples doubted too. Why would Matthew include that unless it really happened? It would make no sense otherwise. The resurrection is the basis of all truth. And it is the end of all your fears. It is the end of your fear of rejection. Because Jesus says to you, I have risen from the dead so that you can be accepted no matter where you are in your journey. The only thing you need to be sure of is that you cannot save yourself and it is by grace alone by which you are saved. Jesus wants you to come to grips with the truth of his resurrection and his resurrection was for you. And he rose for you in love. And if you're struggling with doubts, listen, Paul said to the first Corinthians, he said, listen, like Jesus appeared to 500 people. And if you don't believe me, go ask one of them. The New Testament um, is the most progressive document ever written. I know I'm saying this in a very conservative area, so just bear with me. It's the most progressive document ever written. Because Jesus holds out hope for extraordinary human life for those outside of the upper crust and upper classes of society. It was the only religion in the ancient Near East, the only one who took you no matter what class or creed or race you happened to be. 
And one writer, Philip Yancey, says it, uh, says it this way, I've come to know a God who has a soft spot for rebels, who recruits people like the adulterer David, the whiner Jeremiah, the traitor Peter, and the human rights abuser Saul of Tarsus. I have come to know a God whose son made prodigals the heroes of his story and the trophies of his ministry. Another Sri Lankan Christian, his name is Vinath Ramachandra. He says, the Christian's movement in the world's most, is the most extensive and longest sustained engagement with human otherness. Wherever the church has been faithful to the gospel, that's the key, faithful to the gospel, it has recognized the intrinsic worth of peoples and cultures long despised by the dominant political and religious elites. The church has been motivated to serve the so-called drags of humanity, the destitute, the disabled, the dispossessed, and is a continual story of Christian witness in many parts of the world ever seen. It's the most inclusive religion we've ever had. And so some of you think, well, God couldn't love me. Listen, he does. And the belief in the resurrection is the end of your fear of rejection because though you may swim in rejection in your everyday life, you have a Savior who looks at you and loves you. The resurrection is the basis of all truth and it is the end of all your fears. What other fears did Jews struggle with? What other fears do you struggle with? Well, they also struggled with a fear of insignificance. Some of you may have uh, read a book by a, a guy named Bob Buford. It's, um, it's a book called Halftime. It's a book that a lot of guys between the ages of 40 and 60 read this book because they, they've lived their life, they've tried to make a lot of money, and then they recognize somewhere between, you know, 40 and 50, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like, I am my father, right? Like, I am, I am now middle-aged, and I better figure out how I'm going to live the last half of my life and do something with it because I feel like I've just been so self-absorbed for the first half. A lot of people have that question of how do I be significant? How am I significant? And a lot of us who are getting closer to our retirement years are asking that question a lot. What is the source of our significance? Well, what, what, does, what, does Matthew, what does Matthew tell us? Look down at the text. Jews believed in a resurrection of the dead, but they believed in a resurrection of the dead at the end of time. That one day everybody would be raised, and that would come at the very end when the Messiah returns. But here, Jesus, one person, one person, rises from the dead, and he is a picture of your future. He is a first fruit of the resurrection of the dead, which means that he is a snapshot of what will happen to each and every one of us and all of those who in Christ have died before us. And at no other time in human history have we seen, have sociologists seen, such an explosive expanse of charity across the known world because of a single idea. The single idea was the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his great commission out to his disciples. And while we sometimes struggle for a sense of significance, I, the resurrection tells us that you want to know what your significance is? That you are called up into that great story and that the same commission Jesus gave to his disciples, he gives to you. Go therefore and disciple the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Be my hands and feet. 
Like you think you're a representative of your company and that gives you a great source of pride. You are the hands and feet of the Lord Jesus Christ now as those who are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And Christians, the early Christian church was the most compassionate organism we've ever seen. Ever seen. Scholars don't agree on very much these days, but historians do agree on one thing. Never before or since has there been in 200 years such a dominant transformation of culture as what happened to the empire of Rome through this little band of uneducated, illiterate fishermen. How did that happen? How did these insignificant men gain such significance if the resurrection was not true? Oh, but it was. It was. Julian, in the fourth century, the emperor Julian was saddened by the lack of the pagan charity. Uh, he wrote a, a letter to uh, one of his friends, frustrated. And, you know, the emperor of Rome back then was the, was the chief pontiff of the pagan church. And so he has both the role to rule the state and the role to rule the church. And he wrote this letter, and he says this, I have ordered that every year throughout Galatia, 300,000 modi of grain and 60,000 pints of wine shall be provided for the people. The fifth part of these I ordered to be expanded to the poor who serve the priests, and the rest must be distributed among uh, the strangers and the beggars. For it is disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar and impious Galileans, that is what he called Christians, support our poor in addition to their own. In other words, Julian is saying, I'm embarrassed that these know-nothing Christians who believe in the resurrection of Jesus can, can be so utterly changed that they take care of their own poor and they take care of my poor. It's shameful. Let me ask you a question. Like, if we as a church disappeared from our city, would there be any notice? Do we care for our neighbors? Do we love the unlovely? Do we want to give to mercy funds? Like, this is our call. And it is not insignificant because you've been made significant because Jesus has called you the greatest, most powerful movement in the history of the world. Not only did early Christians care for the poor, but you know what else they did? They cared for um, babies. In fact, Jake and Donna just told me today that they, they had been selected to be the parents of twins. And that is awesome! I mean, isn't that cool? They've been waiting to adopt a child, Jake and Donna, and, and they've been chosen. It's beautiful. And so, of course, it's not done yet, but pray for them. It's precious. That's a picture of what the early church used to do because in Greco-Roman society, if you got pregnant and you didn't want your child, especially if you had a little girl, you threw her into the river. Or you left her on the street. And the women, the women of the church would go along the street and they would take these baby girls and they would pick them up and they would take them back to church and the church members would adopt these children and raise them up and save their life. Now, women, if you want to go out and grab children off the street, please talk to me first so we can get that organized. But listen, it's a beautiful thing. It is not insignificant. Some of us are just going, oh my gosh, I live this mundane, banal life in the middle of the suburbs. No, you don't. 
God has put you here to flourish. He's put you here to change the world in your subdivision, in your neighborhoods, one person at a time. Are you? That's the power of the resurrection for us as his people. Isn't that awesome? Oh, let it put an end to your fear of insignificance because you've been made significant in Jesus. Third, what else? What other fears did the Jews have? Well, the Jews, like like many of us today, like friends that I can think of even now that I have, they had a real fear of death. Why? Because they were concerned that the God that they had worshipped for a thousand years, since the time of David, he's been angry at his people. He has rescued them many, many times but he's also been angry. They knew the entire book of Judges was about how people obeyed. The Lord raised up a judge. And then the people disobeyed and the judge fell and they came into captivity again. They knew that they had sinned and that they had been taken into exile in Assyria, all of Israel, and then into Babylon in 586 B.C., all of Judah. And they knew that there's a history of the cyclical redemption of God in their life and they wanted they wanted to obey God with all of their life and they wanted to obey him as well as they could but they were fearful they were fearful of death are you are you are you fearful are you scared that one day you will breathe your last Kara Tippetts, um, some of you may know that name. She is the wife of a church planter in Colorado Springs, and she developed breast cancer, and she blogged about it on a blog called Mundane Faithfulness. And she blogged about her imminent death. And it's the most beautiful thing I've read in a long time. Because Krista Tippetts died well. And Matthew is telling these Jews it's possible to die well. Why? Because Matthew is locking arms with these other 11, 10 brothers to follow Jesus' great commission. And how many of them died for that message? Every one of them but John. And they gave their life because of the truth of the resurrection. Is the resurrection true? Well, I tell you, you might get one person to die for a lie. It's pretty hard to get 10. It's pretty hard to get a million. It's pretty hard to get our brothers and sisters in Kenya to die for a lie, isn't it? But they died well. Kara Tippett's died well. She said, I rest my life in the arms of my Savior who loves me. Augustine had the Psalms read over him as he passed away because he wanted to hear God's word read to him as he entered from this life into the next. We believe in a truth so powerful that it allows you to die well. Because it allows you not to die as those who don't believe, but we die as people with hope. We die as people with hope. There, Paul Gerhardt wrote a song that we sang at Monday Thursday, if you were there. It's called, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. Be thou my consolation, my shield when I must die. Remind me of thy passion when my last hours draw nigh. Mine eyes shall then behold thee, upon thy cross shall dwell. My heart, 
by faith enfolds thee. Who dieth thus dies well. Listen, um, we are a fearful people these days because we live in a culture that does not systemically has a problem with absolute truth, and yet we say we do believe in the absolute truths. And those absolute truths are based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some of you say, well, how do you know that, preacher? How do you know that? Well, is that even possible? Is that even possible? That's a fair question. That's a fair question. Is the resurrection even possible? And if you're doubting here today, listen, at, let's, bring, let's have a conversation just for a moment. Notice the very beginning in Matthew 28. What happens? There's, there's an earthquake. There's lightning. There's an angel of light. What is Matthew doing? He's hearkening back to creation. And so this, this same God that created the world, if God created the world, do you believe in God? If he created the world, could he also not have caused a resurrection to happen? Well, yeah, you can't have it both ways. Sure he could have. Well, some of you are saying, well, I, I don't know if I believe in God. Okay, well, then how did the world begin? how did the world begin? Was there a creator or was there not? Well, I, I think that someone might say, I, 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 it just happened. I mean, what do you mean, how did it begin? It just happened. Okay, that's fair. Then the resurrection just happened. Like, let's be fair, right? I mean, you can't say that creation just happened and the resurrection couldn't have happened. So I just want, so those of you who are skeptical, who are here, I, I just want you to leave open the option that the resurrection could have just happened. And indeed, I would argue it did. Because why would Matthew give a perfectly plausible explanation to a contrary story? He says that the guards made up a story and said, listen, let's tell everybody else that this is what happened. Why would Matthew, he's trying to defend the historicity of the resurrection. He would never make up a contrary story that really sounds very rational, would he? Unless that really happened too. So what I'm trying to say here is I'm just trying to settle you down and to help you realize that, yes, this is Easter, but we are talking about an event, a real event in human history that is the basis of all absolute truth, and it is the end of all your fears. And if you have doubts about it, please bring those doubts. Let's keep talking about them together. Because it is not the existence of doubt that should concern you. It's actually encouraging. If you didn't doubt, you wouldn't have any faith. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's indifference. And also, it doesn't matter how much faith you have, by the way, because it's the object of your faith that matters. Like you may have just a little little bit of faith in the resurrection. Just a little bit. That is great. That's enough. Because it is the object of your faith that is important, not the amount of it. And Tulsa loves to talk about the amount of devotion, the amount of faith. Oh, if you just have more faith, Jesus will heal me. No, it is the object of your faith that heals you, not the amount. Please hear me say that. You can be on a beautiful teak yacht that has a huge hole in it and say, if I just believe it's going to make it, if I just believe it's going to make it, listen, the sucker is going down. Your faith is not going to save you. And you can be on a John boat in the middle of a hurricane and it can be watertight, and you can say, I'm scared out of my mind. But I have a little faith that's going to make it. It's the object of your faith, not the amount of it that matters. Because the resurrection is the end of all your fears. And if you have doubts about it, please bring those to the table in faith as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of all truth. 
because it really happened. And the good news is that you can, just like those women, you can grab onto Jesus' feet. You notice what it says? It says when they saw Jesus, they grabbed onto his feet and they worshipped. Did you notice that? That's an amazing thing for Matthew to say because you know the last time somebody saw God's feet was in Exodus chapter 24. And Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, they, the elders see the feet of Jesus and it's on a, it's on like cement of sapphire. And God says to them, do not come closer. I'm a holy God. And here we see the feet of Jesus again. The feet of Jesus. And he lets you touch him. Because you have access to him. His body was broken for you. So you might have access to God and know him. And find that all of your fears of rejection and your fears of insignificance and even your fears of death might be wooed to rest and the loving embrace of your Savior who calls you this very morning to repent and believe again. The resurrection of Jesus is a snapshot of your future. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you give us this beautiful picture of the resurrection in Matthew. And just like the Jews, we have many fears, but you accept us not based upon our performance, but upon your finished work. You help us to know our significance, not because of our performance, but because of our relationship with you. And you help us to not fear death, because we are those with hope. And one day, you will call us to live with you forever. Oh, Maranatha, Lord Christ. You have risen indeed. Thank you that you love sinners like us. Amen.